And it is warm here in Wodonga today. I'm missing the cold smog of Melbourne. Lovely to be with you again tonight. And it's always particularly warm amongst the good lights up here on the stage. For those of you who weren't here this morning, before I say anything else, let me... uh, or allow me to say this, that up the back as you go out tonight, there'll be a table there with some books on it. And uh, uh, these books are, are some of the books that I've written. There are little ones like this, which for the generation, the younger generation, who have no time to read, who can only afford to take in something in the advertisements of the television time, and uh, you can, can't get beyond the Reader's Digest condensation of matters. There are little fellows like this. One is called the Prayer of Obedience. The other is the Promise of Vision. Uh, this little booklet here, I don't know how many tens of thousands of that have gone out and have inspired people to get serious about prayer. And this one about vision. Where is your life heading? What is your vision? How do you get vision? How do you work at that? Uh, They're out the back there. And if you want to know more about prayer, this is the big brother of the little one on prayer. This is Growing Church Supernaturally. Persevering Prayer was meant to be the main title and Growing Church Supernaturally was the subtitle. But the publishers in the UK got that all confused and messed up because they're upside down on the wrong side of the globe there. But uh, this one here is the ins and outs of how to take off in prayer in your life and especially in the life of your church around the world where the church grows exponentially, always it is linked into serious, prevailing, persistent, organized prayer. And so that's a vital tool to help you get started in that area. There is the big one here called Mosques and Miracles, which uh, is uh, a bestseller. I don't know how many tens of thousands of copies of this. Uh, I I suspect or I think it's about uh, 35,000 copies. Normally in Australia, if you write a book and sell two to 3,000 over, say, three years, that's considered good. But uh, this one here has uh, sold about 35,000 copies thus far. This is the last copy available in captivity. And a gentleman this morning bought it from me, Dr. Vijay, who I... Are you here tonight, Dr. Vijay? There he is over there. It belongs to him. It's got his name in it. And sir, here is your change here too. He thought I'd forget about that. Uh, Wow, look at that $30. It only cost you $20 for that book. It's a book in three parts. The first part is... What is happening around the world vis-a-vis Islam and the rest of the world? And this is the only book I know of still that stitches together what Islam is doing around the world. The second part is, why is this happening? And you have to understand a little bit about Muslim thinking and theology. And the third part is the good part. Uh, what is God doing in response to that? And then there are appendices uh, which can help you with practical things, what you can do as you meet a Muslim and so forth. That's the last copy we have here. It's being reprinted at the moment. And the publisher told me on Thursday that within a month or so, the next few thousand will be off the press. If you want a copy of that, you just need to give your name in at the desk tonight and your money. For $20, you won't find that 
as cheap as that anywhere. And then following that, some people say, Stuart, I read that, but I, I really find that difficult to believe that uh, those sort of things could be happening. So to help people understand, I wrote this book released a month or so ago called Defying Death. And it's the biography of Zachariah Botros, an apostle to Islam. He's an Egyptian Coptic priest. He was, at least. And uh, he met God in an amazing way. And through his ministry in Cairo in Egypt, uh, there were, imagine what it's like. Some of you would know the name John Stott. One of the staff down here trained at the famous Ridley College where John Stott is up there with the Apostle Paul and those sort of guys. That's right, isn't it? And, uh, but when John Stott came across Zachariah Botros in uh, the mid-70s, he said it was an amazing experience to find this guy doing a midweek Bible study teaching verse by verse through the book of Galatians and there were 5,000 people present at the Bible study. And then at the end of that time, of course, when you come together for ministry, you don't just come to preach to give information or inspiration. We come because we expect to move into God. And so Zachariah Botros would always pray for the sick. And there would always be deliverance involved in some cases as a part of that. Amazing things happening. But of course, it didn't take long for the authorities in Egypt to find out what was happening and that there were hundreds of Muslims coming to the Lord and finding freedom and health and wholeness through his ministry. So as a reward for that, he and others were thrown into prison, not once, but a couple of times. Uh, Eventually, he was taken out of prison and as a part of the deal which was cut, he was sent into exile in the good country that receives all convicts, the nation of Australia, where he was for a little while and then to the UK. Now he's in another country where he lives with significant security. Um, A couple of months ago, the FBI, that'll tell you what country he's now in, but the FBI phoned and said, there's a man who is going around, we're tracking him, he's offering a million dollars just to find out what your address is. Uh, The reason for that is, Zachariah Botros is now broadcasting over satellite satellite television four times a day into the Arabic-speaking Middle Eastern countries, and he's having a profound impact on those difficult-to-reach people so that each month thousands of them are signifying their desire to follow Jesus and to leave Islam. Because of that, he has a price on his head. He has a couple of prices, actually, ranging from $5 million to $25 million for anyone who can kill him. So he lives a precarious existence. It's a great story, and this is his story, and uh, you can have a copy of that. It's $12.50, and that's just $20, and that's $12.50, and these little fellas are $5. You won't find them you won't find them as cheap as that anywhere else. And my manager down the front here is also my wife. All of you fellows who are married do understand your wife is your manager, don't you? No? Who said no? You're not married, I would assume. <laughs> Better pre- marriage counselling needed there. <laughs> she reminded me that the additional thing while I'm here is that, of course, I will sign the books for you. And, uh, and I know the other thing you want me to say, my dear, yes, beloved, yes, I'll do all that, is that these two 
This is only one here. And this is the last copy of that one. Oops, whoops. This one, the defined death, that's the last copy of that one which is available. So it's a case of first come, first serve. If you want a copy of that, and you want a copy of that because they're not available tonight, they've all, what we bought is gone, then just put your name down and leave your money there and we will make sure that the copies are sent up here and they'll be available, they'll be distributed to you. Although there will be about a month's wait on that particular one there. Others are available up the back. So now have I said everything? Okay. I, I think I have her, her approval. I often call her she who must be obeyed. What do you call your wife? <laughs> hey, let's get on with the main stuff. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the real reason we're here tonight, to hear something uh, out of your word, to understand what's happening in the world. And uh, Lord, I just pray that as we look through the lens in this year of our Lord, 2007, into the 21st century, you will give us understanding and clarity and cause us to respond as your servants for this century. And that when we come, by the time the end of it comes, some people here tonight will have with their very lives rewritten the history of our time such as it might not otherwise have been. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It doesn't matter where you go throughout the world. As you gaze out through the, the reedy swamps of our television antennae and satellite dishes, which are in every town and city and village around the world, or in a place like uh, Wodonga here, as you go to the news agents and there's a great racks of magazines. No matter where one goes, the news has reached all of us that in our time, uh, there has been unleashed upon us spiritual forces of tremendous magnitude and power. And these are, whether we are aware of it or not, they are already affecting our daily lives. And the most powerful of these is Islam. For many years, Christians have gone out from our sundry countries to the nation of Islam to witness to them. But in these days, the tide of missionary endeavor has been reversed. And through a deluge of immigration, through high family birth rates, through intentional missionary activity, through uh, all of which is underpinned, through monies being made available, supporting Islamic schools and training colleges, universities around the world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and in sundry Western countries, including Australia, Islam is on the march. Almost 14 centuries ago, under the leadership of its prophet called Muhammad, it swept out of the sands of what is today known as Saudi Arabia. And within a century, its armies had conquered all the previously most populous Christian countries from Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, as they're called today, in the east, right through the Mediterranean basin, over to Morocco and sweeping across the Straits of Gibraltar, up through Spain and into southern France, where in 742, finally, the army of Charles Martel in France called a halt to that. From time to time in its history, Islam has lulled into recession. But in our day, Especially since the first oil crisis of 1973, Islam is once more expanding very rapidly. The movement that we encounter is strong. 
It is self-confident. And in some of its forms, it's very aggressive. It is stern. It is unyielding. It is hostile to everything outside of itself. And this previously underestimated power, with the perspective of history, when our times are written up, I have no doubt whatsoever that it will be judged as the most profound, widespread, and influential movement of our times. In the area of politics, by the year 2005, 57% or 57 acknowledged Islamic nations were a part of the United Nations. And approximately 25% of the voting bloc at the United Nations were made up of these Muslim countries. In June 2005, the organization of the Islamic Council called for a permanent seat on the United Nations Security Council so that they could represent the Islamic world and their agenda of liberating Jerusalem, of destroying Israel or Zionist occupation, as they would say. Such a position, of course, would also give them veto power over everything that they didn't want, which might impede the impetus of what they favored. The most recent resurgence of Islam in our times came to our international attention back in 1981 when Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, Musavi Khomeini, urged all Muslims in Iran to commit themselves to the holy war of jihad against all infidel nations, that is, all non-Muslim governments. And he reportedly said this, Muslims have no alternative if they wish to enforce those in power to the laws and principles of Islam to conform to that. Holy war means the conquest of all non-Muslim territories. And this war is the duty of all Muslims. It doesn't matter what else you hear and various things will be said by various people in the media from time to time. This is absolute bedrock stuff. In 1989, he was reported as saying, we shall export our revolution to the whole world until the cry, there is no God but Allah, resounds over the whole world, there will be struggle. The Quran is Islam's holy book. And once more, the principles of that book are being used to chart a course of world conquest. In 2003, Syed Ayaz al-Shar of Pakistan was reported as saying, since the days of the Prophet, there are only two forces on earth, Muslims and infidels, and their fight will go on until Judgment Day. Aziruddin Shadr is another well-known Pakistani research scholar. And back in the 1970s, he defined the parameters or the, the borders of the coming conflict. And he wrote this, the division of time in the West is on a work-play basis. In a Muslim country, it is on a fight-pray basis so that the external limits of Islam can be expanded and that the people of Islam can be strengthened from within. In his simple analysis, I dare say there is a good deal of truth because here in our nation of Australia, it is true we divide time into working and playing, and we want to do less and less work so we can spend more and more time playing or relaxing. But keep in mind, in a Muslim country, the division of time is on a different basis. It is on a fight-pray 
basis. With the events, of course, which have since taken place in Nairobi and in New York, Bali, Madrid, Jakarta, Moscow, Beslan, Istanbul, London, Mumbai, Glasgow, many other places around the world, in the intervening three decades, we are starting now to understand the seriousness of what these Muslim leaders and scholars were saying back then. So much for politics. In the area of finance... It's widely recognized that the Middle Eastern Islamic countries wield very significant financial power. And we are reminded of that linkage every time we go to refuel our vehicles. For many years to come, oil from the Middle East will be the economic jugular of the Western world. And if ever that jugular is squeezed in any way, the potential for automatic, quick, economic upheaval is enormous in Western economies. Remember this, Saudi Arabia has 25% of the world's known proven oil reserves. America consumes every day 25% of the production of international oil. And that helps you to understand that, that simple equation of some of the otherwise difficult to understand things that America does in various parts of the world, including Iraq. There was a professor of, at uh, Professor Samuel Huntingdon, a Harvard professor, who summed up the situation after he'd done a lot of research, and he said this, the actions of the oil-rich Muslim states, if placed in their historical, religious, racial, and cultural settings, amount to nothing less than a bold attempt to lay the Christian West under tribute to the Muslim East. The Saudi, Libyan, and other governments have used their oil riches to stimulate and finance Muslim revival. And that contest for economic supremacy, which is another aspect of jihad, of holy war, is being waged on many fronts. Boycotts are specifically mounted against major international American brands. So the giants like McDonald's and Burger King, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, all of these have been affected. And calls are being made from in various countries for Muslims to redirect their investments and their finance solely for the benefit of is to be used within the Islamic sphere. And those same calls are made here in Australia. Malaysia is promoting itself as a global hub of Islamic finance and is calling for the processing of corporate debt to be done through Islamic rules. It introduced the Islamic gold dinar in 2003 as a first step to replace the international use of the United States dollar initially among Islamic countries. But then in 2006, a global bank was established to rival that of Western lenders. So much for finance and the billions of dollars which are being generated and used as a backing for expansion of the religion. But it's in the area of religious missionary activity where the most startling changes are occurring around the world. In Africa, the citizens of various countries there report that mosques have been multiplying in every direction 
from Cairo to the, the Cape, from Mozambique way out to the west on the other side, wherever one goes, facilitating the conversion to Islam from people who are being racked with the turmoil of agricultural, health, educational, industrial chaos, which has been a part of life in Africa in the post-colonial era. In August 2006, that's of last year, just over a year ago, I was meeting with leaders from 10 sub-Saharan African nations, and they explained to me how they felt quite powerless to help their people because missionaries have mostly departed, the hospitals and the dispensaries are no longer available, which missionaries ran, the education through the missionary schools and so forth have all gone. The people are poor, they're in need of food, they're in need of help, and who is coming to offer the help? but Muslim missionaries from various countries of the world, but always with the caveat, the proviso attached to the offer, we will give you a job in the new factory that we are constructing, but you do need to meet us down in the mosque next Friday, and so on it goes. Whilst here in the West, the good old sleepy West, in a church which has grown obese through the affluence of its environment, I guess England provides as good as an example as, as any country, and I could look at various countries, but we don't have time for that. Back in the 1970s, Muslims always have a very long-term strategy, 50-year plans, 100-year plans, which they work to. But back in the 1970s, Muslim strategists targeted England in the belief that if they could win that country, it would be far more easy to win the rest of the English-speaking world. And so in 1976, the head of the state church, Queen Elizabeth II, defender of faith of that church, which is known as the Church of England, was called upon by her prime minister to open an amazing festival called the Festival of Islam, the Festival of England. And one of the objectives, if not the principal aim, of that particular festival was the de-Christianization or the Islamicization of her own country. We in the West are so readily easy, or at least our politicians are, to sell our birthrights for a mere bowl of pottage. And significant money is on hand to ensure that happens. In England and in other Western countries, what has happened and is happening also in Australia that the church, in seeking to maintain cultural and social relevance, constantly changes its position. And as a result of that, the rest of the nation comes to regard it as being spiritually irrelevant. And into that resultant vacuum, there is sweeping today as emptying churches are recycled into fast-filling Muslim mosques. Islam is coming into the spiritual vacuum of the West. England's capital today is widely known as Londonistan. And around its lampposts, they're wrapped there, the photographs, the stickers, the, the placards of those who brought down the New York Towers. And they are eulogized, they are praised as being the Magnificent 19. In 2003, the largest operating mosque in Europe with a seating capacity of 10,000 was opened in London. And plans have been submitted now, 
next to the Olympic site 2012 to build another mosque there, which will have a capacity of 70,000 people at a time. And this will be a world Islamic center. Calls are made for the Muslim flag to fly over 10 Downing Street. And over in America, similar calls are made for that flag to fly over the White House. Oh, and it's happening in 2001 for the very first time. Prayers were said to Allah in the White House. And then in November 2006, the first Muslim was elected to Congress and more and more astounding. It would be interesting for you to know the religious background of candidates forthcoming in our coming federal election here. Dr. Al-Qaradarwi, an Egyptian scholar, said that the Islamic conquest of the West need not necessarily be by the sword. It can be by an army of preachers and teachers. And he says that Islam will invade America and Europe because it has logic and a mission. Another leader, Omar Ahmed, said, America isn't, Islam isn't in America to be equal to any other faiths. It's here to become the dominant faith. The Quran should be the highest authority in America, and Islam should be the only accepted religion on the earth. A Saudi professor, Nasser bin Suleiman al-Omar, in June 2004, he said, Islam is advancing according to a steady plan, to the point where tens of thousands of Muslims have joined the American army, and Islam is the second largest religion in America. America will be destroyed, but we must be patient. Other leaders were very upset with what happened in the New York Towers incident. One of them said, we did not occupy the United States with 8 million Muslims using bombing. Had we been patient and let time take its course, instead of 8 million, there would have been 80 million here. And so that within 50 years, America would have become an Islamic nation. Western political leaders and religious leaders have been dismissive or ignorant of the last 14 centuries of Islamic preaching and, tact and, and teaching, deluding themselves into thinking that when Muslims come into the Western countries as immigrants or whatever, in some amazing way they will change from what they have been for the rest of their lives. And so then we get a great shock when our media reports that sometimes in some mosques, prayers, when they are ending there, there is a call to destroy Israel or to destroy infidels who support them, of some Muslim teachers urging the faithful to have nothing to do with non-Muslim peoples because that is exactly what the Quran instructs them so to do. And of course, in all of this, we imagine that our policies of assimilation will somehow work where the liberal, secular, multi-religious, democratic, democratic Western societies, I would say, have as much chance of succeeding in assimilation as a heart transplant would have in the absence of immunosuppressant drugs. The inevitable result of both of those courses is tissue rejection. An Islamic commentator by the name of Ibn Warak, he said, there may be many moderate Muslims, but Islam itself is not moderate. Islam is offering to people today a certainty of belief through a very simple creed. And so from millions of mosques around the world every day, there rings out five times a day in Arabic, La ilaha illa Allah, 
Muhammad Rasulullah. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. And in the Western world, Muslim missionaries are preaching that where Christianity has failed, Islam will rescue the nation from its mire of drunkenness, of sexual permissiveness, of political corruption, of violence and blasphemy, and all of the other sicknesses which ail the isolated, technocratic Christian West. And their preachers say that while the West boozes its way to destruction, Islam offers a better and more wholesome way of life. And they insist that the life of one true Muslim believer is of more value and of more effect than a hundred Christian missionary agencies. And they believe that the day is coming when all will turn and bow towards Mecca, the holy city in Saudi Arabia, bow down and confess that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. In 2001, when an Australian couple were flying a domestic route in Pakistan, the well-dressed gentleman next to them asked them from what country they came. And they said, oh, we come from Australia. And straight away, his reply was, oh, Australia, we already have Australia. And if you don't come peaceably, we will declare jihad. A captain of a certain well-known Middle East Airlines, who is also an Australian, told me how a few years ago when he was captaining his plane, a VIP came up from the cabin and, of course, was able to gain access to the flight deck. And when he sat down next to the captain on the plane and asked him where he was from, and, of course, he said from Australia, his reply was, oh, as soon as we have enough people in there, we will take it for Islam. In a Victorian town of Kyabram, not very far away from here, when a lady apologised accidentally because she had bumped into a lady in the, the aisle of the supermarket and she immediately apologised for it. The lady, all dressed in Muslim clothing, turned to her and said, you may be sorry now, but not half as sorry as you're going to be when Muslims take over Australia. In a maternity ward in Melbourne, where a Muslim lady was there again and again and again and again and again, having yet another baby with great difficulty, one of the midwifery staff asked her why she was going through this year after year after year. And she replied, our religious leaders tell us to do this so that one day we will be able to take over this country. Heraclius was the Byzantine emperor of Rome. At the time of the emergence of Muhammad, the birth of Islam, he had no idea what was happening out there in the far province of Arabia. He had no idea of the spiritual vacuum which was developing in his empire. And in our day, the conditions are almost the same, a spiritual vacuum. And we are mostly unaware or we are in denial as to the mega realities of what is coming our way. Islam is on the march and it has already reached well within our borders. The question is, how do we respond? And tonight I want to give you five things that we need to do as quickly as I can to say this is what we should be doing. Firstly, we need to change our attitudes. If the followers of Jesus Christ 
are to rise to the challenge of this day rather than to collapse in the whimper of night. We have to change our attitude toward the challenge which is before us. Down through the centuries of the Islamic era, Christians have believed it is impossible to win the Muslim. And if we speak and act defeat, that is exactly what we will get. Christians have allowed themselves to become like the children of Israel. That story which is there in Numbers 13 and 14, where they had been coming through the desert regions. They came up to Kadesh Barnea and God has said, there's the country before you. Go in, take it. It's a wonderful place. And instead of just taking God at his word and operating by faith such as they were encouraged to do, they did what we often do in our churches today. They formed a little committee of review. And the committee had 12 members on it and they were sent off to spy out the land. And, ten, and two of them came back, Joshua and Caleb saying, yes, God's word is true. It's a wonderful place, milk and honey. Oh, come on, let's go and get this. But then 10 of them came back saying, oh, just a minute. The cities in that place, the armaments, the weapons, the people. Why, they are like giants and compared to them, we are as grasshoppers. We cannot go in there. Their evaluation, of course, was based upon the physical situation as they understood it, rather than on the, re the realities in the spirit which God had declared to be so. God said, go in, possess that land. I have given it to you. But they chose to limit his greatness, his might and his power by the circumstances as they with human understanding could best understand it. And as a result of that, a faithless, deceiving report was released out into the camp, taken up by all the people who believed it. And as a result of that, an entire generation was turned aside, there to be wasted out in the desert over the next 40 years. And I believe that today, similarly, Satan wants to seduce us into believing that Muslims are unreachable. He wants to discourage us with a spirit of defeat. He wants to overwhelm us with fear. A Sunday or two ago in our church, there was a, a visiting leader from England and we got talking about the situation in England and how Islam is progressing in that country. And he lives in the city of Birmingham, which will be the first majority declared Muslim city of Britain in a few years' time. And he said, Stuart, the prevailing attitude amongst all of us in Britain is that of fear. And it cowers us down. How true is his assessment. I want to say to you that we need to know again the greatness of our God. We need to have our eyes opened as was that, that fearful young man who was with Elisha and as was his experience when his eyes were opened to see again that the mountains are still filled with the horses and the chariots of our God that it talks of in 2 Kings 6. We need to know the reality of 1 John 4, 4, which says that the, spirit, the, the power of the Spirit which is within us is greater than that which is in the world. We need to remember what it says in Ephesians 2, 6, that God has raised us up with Christ and has seated us with Him in heavenly realms. 
and therefore our place is not under but above spiritual adversaries. We have a position of dominion and authority over them. We are to be more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, Thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we do not live under but over the circumstances. Jesus is Lord. He is King of Kings. And He does not mean to send us forward to frustration and powerlessness and defeat. He means that in His name, we will be spiritually victorious because He is the all-conquering Lion Lamb of Judah. And He declares it is only at His name that every knee shall bow and confess that He is Lord. There is no need to fear. Fear is that which takes us out of the supernatural and puts us into the natural. The antidote to that, of course, is faith, whereby we are removed from the realm of the natural into the realms of the supernatural. And we need to be like the boy David, who in 1 Samuel 17, when he withheld this great giant Goliath, David did not look at the size of the man who'd managed to intimidate all of the armies of Israel, but he looked at the greatness of his God. And as he did that, he came to a place just like Brother Andrew of Open Doors came to when he so gloriously said, Islam, I-S-L-A-M means I sincerely love all Muslims. And along with the Apostle Paul, who in a hostile, was in a hostile environment, when Jesus said to him in Acts 18, Paul, do not be afraid. Go on with your preaching. Do not be silenced for I am with you. In Psalm 72, it says this, that the desert tribes will bow down before God. All kings will bow down before Him. All nations will serve Him. If we will just take the trouble to pray and ask God to bring across our area of influence, our relationships, our friendships, just one Muslim and ask God to give us a friendship with that person, let me tell you what might happen. The story is someone whom I'll call Muzaffar for the protection of his life. He said this, When my friend became a Christian, we became poles apart, especially in our beliefs. Religiously speaking, he had become an infidel apostate. But humanly speaking, he was still my only friend. He was an infidel because he'd become a Christian. But he was still honest, sincere, faithful and loving toward everyone. I used to pray to Allah to guide him back to the truth of Islam. I remember the brothers at our fundamentalist group always asking me to end my relationship with him and to fight him because he was now an infidel. At that time it was known in the area that he had become a Christian. As a result of that he faced a lot of persecution. Nevertheless, I always saw him as both firm and friendly. He even showed love and forgiveness toward his persecutors. I was amazed and shocked at the same time. 
I had so many questions tearing up my mind. How could he be full of such love and peace and yet be an infidel? How come he didn't pay back evil for evil, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, such as we were taught? He used to say that he followed in the steps of Jesus Christ that he believed in, that is, loving his enemies, forgiving those who mistreated him. Before such love... All of my years of Islamic commitment and fundamentalism, all that hardened me against his heart and his love, diminished. This love confronted me and all of my claims that mine was the true religion, that Allah was the God of the universe, that we Muslims were the best nation in the whole world, that our Prophet Muhammad was the seal of all the prophets and the messengers of God. All of these claims, listen to what he says, all of these claims could not stand in the face of this overflowing river of love. Today, Musafa also is a follower of Jesus. And that can happen when we will change our attitudes. Secondly, we need to believe and expect. We need to believe and expect greater things of God. You see, faith is is that which takes the things of the Spirit and, and unlocks those resources which He has placed within us. The Bible says that all things are possible to him who believes. Faith helps us to reach the unreachable, to touch the untouchable, to see the invisible. But our problem is, down through the ages, we have not believed. And it shows in our actions, our attitudes, and our words. And until that is changed, Islam will still be the world's fastest growing religion, not so much because of its strength, which is formidable indeed, but because of our weakness. We need to repent, to change our attitudes, repent of our unbelief. Thirdly, we need to reaffirm and prepare. We must reaffirm that we are involved in a spiritual warfare and be prepared to enter into it. And the evidence from so many sources around the world is quite conclusive that in our time, compared with any other time, more Muslims are being one to the Lord than ever before. Those things which you see on your television screens every week of the latest disaster, whether it's over in Darfur, whether it's the Taliban rampaging uh, um, into Afghanistan, whether it's the latest machinations in Iran, whether it's the the earthquake which killed 70,000 in Pakistan or the tsunami around Indonesia and so forth. Understand, yes, those things are cataclysmically horrible, but God uses those things. And wherever there is a compassionate Christian presence in the midst of all of that mess. Muslims are coming to the Lord in ways such as we've never seen before. We need to be prepared to enter into the battle. And the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6 that we're to be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power, to put on the full armor of God so that we might be able to take our stand against the devil's schemes For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. And he goes on to encourage us to take a stand and then to start to pray after you have done everything, he says, to stand, to stand, to stand. 
2 Corinthians 10, 4 says the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Spiritual warfare between good and evil, between light and darkness, has been waged since the beginning of time. And this which we see today is the product of the mother of all wars being raged and waged across the entirety of humanity in this 21st century. Fourthly, we need to pray. We are to lift our faces confidently toward heaven rather than lowering them in submission to Mecca. In World War II, it is said, the battle for Britain was won in the skies over England. And this battle also will be won in the powers of the air. But in addition to the general prayers that we might all pray, we need to pray specifically to the Lord of the harvest. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38, Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Ask, pray to the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into that harvest field. Therefore, finally, number five, we are to ask. And we're to ask, Lord, what do you want of me? Not all those other people. Let's personalize, let's individualize this. What do you want of me in the, in, in the face of the situation which we now have around the world? We need to come before God and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to become? Where do you want me to go? In Acts chapter 9, there is the story there of a young man who was called Saul. And he was sent on a mission. He'd been very successful in his first major assignment. He'd been to the local university. He'd studied under good professors. He graduated. He had his foot on the first rung of the successful career. He'd supervised the stoning, the killing of Stephen, and now he was on his second major assignment. If he could achieve this in the light and the eyes of the big bosses, the executive powers back there in Jerusalem in the temple, surely he would be the bright young star rising up for promotion. And so he was on his way to Damascus, breathing out murderous threats against these people who were known as the people of the way, these followers of Jesus. Oh, he had set his direction. He had his plans. He had his goals. He thought he knew what he was doing. The world was all before him. But as he was going along, unexpectedly, unnaturally, suddenly there was a clap of thunder and a flash of light and he found himself hurled to the ground. And as he scrabbled around there in the dust at the side of the road, he looks around and up and says, Lord, who are you? What do you want me to do? And back comes the reply, I am Jesus. Get up and go to Damascus and I will show you what you need to do. And of course, there his sight was eventually restored and he went off immediately to Arabia to wait for further instructions. Today, just as was the case with Saul, who became Paul, we need to decide whether we will hide our eyes from the challenge and close our ears to the call or whether we will act with a new decisiveness, humility and devotion and make our Lord's last command 
our first priority. And upon the choice that we make here, there will gradually become out, outcomes for the century before us, and the effect may well be as to whether, if not our children, then our grandchildren grow up in Christian or Islamic Australia. Let's pray. Father, tonight in this place, we've been confronting some serious stuff of the macro realities of what is happening around us in our world. Lord, give us that incisive clarity of understanding, and not just understanding, but the willingness of obedience which comes with the urge of submission to you that we might not disappoint you in this hour of need. Oh yes, many of us here are like Saul. We have our goals, we have our education, we have our objectives, we think we know where we're going, we're on assignment, we're climbing the corporate ladder or whatever it is at whatever stage of life we're in, but you, you also have your purposes. We need to hear that from you tonight at this time. Father, in this moment of quietness, before we finish and resume our, our friendships, our talking with friends and others in this place, the chatter of relationships. Father, in a moment of silence, would you speak, would you reveal yourself that we might be able to hear and respond. Let every eye remain closed and every head be bowed. Let's just take this moment and ask the question, Lord, what do you want of me? In view of what I've been hearing here tonight or this morning or morning and night, what do you want of me? There are those in this meeting tonight to whom God is trying to speak. And he's saying, you are the one. You nod perhaps because your heart thumps a little harder or a bit faster. You are the one. I want you to step out. I'm not telling you at this stage where. I'm not advising you of all that you need to know, but it's the first step. You are the one that I'm calling. Yes, the field is white under harvest. Yes, it might be in Afghanistan or Pakistan or Malawi or Ghana or China, that will come later. But tonight, you are the one. If you believe that God may be speaking to you at this time, 
here's what we're going to do. It's a private moment. There'll be enough time for public affirmation later. But let every eye remain closed. Let every head be bowed. Be asking the question, Lord, is it me? If you believe to the best of your ability, it could be you that God is speaking to tonight. I want to pray with you. After this service, I'd like to spend a few minutes just talking with you further, explaining, clarifying the next steps. But that's as we, after we finish. But right now, if that's you, wherever you are seated in this place, while the rest of us pray, would you stand as a first step of your intention, acknowledging God has his eye and his hand upon you? And I'm going to pray for you in the midst of this friendly place where other believers in future years will be here to continue to pray with you and for you. Just stand at this time, whoever you are. Any more? Nothing to be afraid of. Don't worry about the unknown of the future. Someone said to me recently, Stuart, why on earth would you be going to Afghanistan again? Isn't that too dangerous? To which I replied, the safest place on earth is to be in the center of God's will. Don't let fear hold you back. You can trust God. Several are standing anymore before I pray. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time you've given us together here tonight. The rest of the nation, maybe at this time, looking at the television, watching the debate between our Prime Minister and the leader of the largest party in opposition, Mr. Rudd and Mr. Howard. But we know that this is for a term of office of just three years. We know that you are the one who raises up and puts down governments and kings and parliaments. We're here tonight for more serious business, the effects of which will go on for decades and be seen for all of eternity. Lord, I pray for those who are standing here in this congregation tonight. You know them, I don't. And you are the one who speaks into the depths of their spirits. Father, I just pray that this first seeking step of acknowledgement for you might be the first of a whole succession of steps which as the years unfold, will see them supported by this or other churches going forward for training, for relocation, for the rest of their lives, for however long you determine. But Lord, we know this, that because they choose to be obedient to you and you do not send us out to frustration and defeat, you mean us to be victorious in the things of your kingdom. For these brothers and sisters here tonight, Lord, create for them an unforgettable night 
the night when you spoke and they responded. We will never meet again in this way, exactly the same in this place. But there will come another day, another time, when we are before your great, unimaginable, glorious throne, surrounded by zillions of worshippers, the angels and the archangels, the cherubim, the seraphim, the waves of worship and praise of which we shall delight and there we may meet again. But there with us, behind us and before us, to the right and to the left of us, there will be those people who have come into your kingdom through the house of Islam or from whatever other place. And they will be there because these your servants have gone forth and they chose to live and to speak by their very lives about Jesus. And there around them will be the real trophies for all of eternity of how you have used them. Father, I pray for these ones here tonight that you will provide for them, you will protect them, your love and your care will be around them. Lord, I commend them for your attention. I commit them for your provision that you will go before them every step of the way, rewriting history gloriously so for the kingdom of God increasingly coming to earth, giving us a supernatural love for all peoples, especially the Muslim peoples of the earth. Father, I just commit these folk to you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to end some way or other just now. I'll leave that up to the pastor to reconstruct the wreckage I create. But those who have just stood... Should you choose, I'd like to meet with you for just a few minutes to share with you something. Uh, we'll go through to the room over there. There's a door there. There's been a place and a space cleared out for us. And as the service finishes, I'll go through there. Love to spend just a few minutes with you. Your mates will wait for you. And uh, then we'll be through tonight. God bless you.